Hello, everyone. Welcome to Mental Health TV. Today, we're going to be talking about a whole host of things. We're going to be talking about uh, COVID, dual diagnosis, sexuality, sex, and we're going to be um, introducing and talking to our fantastic guest. But first, before I do that, can I hand you over to Vanessa, who's going to tell you a little bit about how you can join in tonight. Hello, everybody. Looking forward to tonight's conversation. Um, I'm going to be doing the social media tonight. So if you're listening to this um, via Unite um, Facebook page, you can send us any questions in the comments link. Or alternatively, you can follow on Twitter via MHTV. So do send us your questions and I will ask Liz and our panel tonight. Thank you. Okay, so I'm Nikki Lamott. Can I introduce to our fantastic guest, Professor Liz Hughes? Hello. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about how you came to be where you are today in these exalted heights of professorship? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, one of the 23%, I believe, um, mm. as, a, as a woman. Um, so I've been a mental health nurse since 94, and I worked in acute mental health and drug and alcohol services. Um, I think I did a placement when I was a student on um, a drug service um, in Hampshire and it just completely changed my whole view on drug and alcohol and it just became my passion. So that's what I wanted to do. But I also wanted to kind of consolidate some of my training as well. So I did acute psychiatry as well as drug and alcohol. Um, and then I ended up in London working in a community drug and alcohol service with people with quite complex and long-term needs. And I used to work across um, between what was then the Jewel team and Guy's Hospital. And I used to attend their um, referral meeting and pick up you know, new referrals, uh, people with mental health and substance use. Then a post became available in Bromley. So then I became a dual diagnosis worker, which was probably one of the first commissioned roles of that type and unbelievably tough job that was looking back it was really really hard I was trying to work across lots of different sectors in a time when people hadn't really thought too much about this issue and it was before the department of health had any guidance um so I did that for about a year and a half and then a job came up at the institute of psychiatry on a large uh, research trial and they needed a clinician to design the training and deliver the training and be part of that team. So uh, I applied for it and amazingly got the job. I didn't think I would get it. It seemed very intimidating to me as a, as a nurse going into academia. Um, and then I kind of did a PhD on the back of that. And then I've kind of done CPD, research, teaching, and kind of moved about a bit and, and ended up where I am now so it's kind of one thing led to another really I wouldn't say I had a plan um but you know kind of opportunities appeared and uh, and uh, just grab them really and mm, just follow your passions choice. I think I think follow your passions and yeah. and uh follow your interests and things kind of happen from that as well so for people yeah. who don't know can you tell us a little bit about what dual diagnosis is yeah a uh, dual diagnosis a bit of a it's a bit, a bit of a sort of dated term now, but we kind of still use it because it still has a little bit of currency. Um, but it, it's basically, from my understanding, is that it's people who have a co-occurring substance use and mental health problems, issues that kind of require, um, you know, an integrated treatment. But also um, the problem with dual diagnosis is it, people don't just have two problems. They have multiple needs and needs that stretch back over time um, often compounding each other and ones that seem to really fox the services as they stand because we do operate in silos so when somebody presents with multiple needs it does cause issues in terms of where is that person best placed to get their needs met um, so that's that's the kind of in a nutshell it's people with that kind of co-occurrence of drug and alcohol problems but you'll have different severities along each of those issues so you might have severe mental illness and occasional cannabis smoking which might be impacting on the mental health right through to somebody who has opiate dependence and comorbid depression and anxiety so that's a really vast population we're talking about it really is an umbrella term rather than a very specific uh, field as such 
Yeah. I think I interrupted Vanessa. Well, you were going to ask a question then. Sorry. No, it's all right. No, um, I was just thinking, um, I think last time we met Liz was a few years ago at um, Ian Hamilton's event, which was on women and drugs. And um, you've just alluded again to, um, well, two issues for me about gender. One is about um, the fact that you said only 23% of women in professor roles, which is really interesting. Um, and the other comment I wanted to ask you about was um, just around gendered issues as a, as a woman working in, in that space around substance use. What do you think the gendered issues are around substance use? And, you know, in terms of you being a woman working in that area, how do you think that has impact? So, yeah, so a question for me about uh, the, um, the sort of inequality around women in roles like your own and a question really about gender and addictions. Yeah, okay. I'll I'll start with the one about um academic roles. Um I mean this is not this is not specific to academia. This is you see this in any any industry really that you see at the top. You'll see uh, a disparity between um gender and ethnicity as well. I mean there's an intersection um as well um going on. It's not just about um women and inequality. It's also um having visible black and ethnic minorities in senior positions in any organisation, that's another issue. Um, and heaven forbid the intersection of gender and ethnicity. Um, so I think, I mean, we know that about 50% of people who get PhDs are, are men, are men and women. So you've kind of got a, a, a nice equal gender split at that point. But it's the postdoc space that becomes the issue mm. in terms of where the genders start to sort of divide. And I think there's all it's complex. I think there's all sorts of things going on. I think women don't necessarily have that have met good mentors that they can look don't have necessarily. If you've got less women at the top, there's less women to mentor you. Yeah. So, you know, you often don't have that kind of um, role model or that support or that hand up. Um, there's a lot of stuff that happens out of hours and, you know, international travel and conferences and meetings that women with small children just can't really engage with that yeah. um, environment. And certainly for me, having a small child, I remember there was a, a period of time when all that activity died down because I didn't want to be away from home and I didn't want to um and so there is there is but then it's what happens to those women and how they get support to you know make because one of the things about getting to senior academia is that your networks and who you work with it's not just for it's not just borrowing your own it's about who you know what networks you have opportunities come from those networks to be a co-applicant on a, on a grant you get that grant and then you might learn a lot by being part of that study which means that you can then put that learning into your own lead you know lead your own grant and all that kind of stuff needs to happen um and i just don't think the women often for all sorts of reasons get those opportunities some of it is just domestic some of it is about opportunities to progress in different ways that mean you don't have to be out after work having drinks with the boys and you know you're not at that conference in wherever it is you know there's there's ways to do it without having to to kind of be in that space so we need we need to change how we work but I'm wondering whether the remote ways of working mm. since lockdown will actually help in some uh, it's not helping women we know that but those opportunities to kind of be at meetings might actually be there if it's all remote and you don't have to travel so it's it's interesting and um uh, I'm, I'm just trying to think if I've got anything else to say about that. I'll, I may come back. Um, yeah. I've, I mean, I think I've been really lucky because I, I, I've worked with some really incredible women who provided me with some opportunities and um, and support and belief. And uh, but I've also worked with some fantastic male bosses who um, have again have really supported me, supported me with my sort of work life balance. Um, haven't put ridiculous demands that are impossible to meet, you know, and I'm a great believer in you don't have to work a million hours a week to achieve, you know, you have to have some sanity and you have to have some balance. 
And it's about quality, not quantity. And also mm. about being really focused about what you do. Don't try and do everything. And I'm, I've, you know, I've made these mistakes before and taken on too much and then you end up too many plates spinning. But keeping yeah. focused and keeping your eye on, um, you know, what you want to achieve and what you're interested in and, and make sure that your narrative makes sense. Um, you can save a lot of, you know, dead ends and, and kind of doing things because you think you should and um, that kind of thing. So, and the second question about um, working in drug and alcohol services, um, as a woman, I can't, you, when, in, when I worked in drug and alcohol services in London, I certainly worked with, the clients were more male than female, because we know that women struggle to seek help around mm. their drug and alcohol problems for all sorts of reasons. Some of it's about fears about childcare. Other it is just barriers to just even getting dragging your three children to an appointment you know and often um it's just not it just doesn't happen so most of my clients were men um in the, in the service I worked at so I, whether that has a difference than dynamic I don't know um certainly in the hierarchy of the service it was quite equal um it was quite a lot of uh, female managers and male managers so I, again I I'm not I'm not conscious of of any dynamics, particularly in that environment. In fact, to be honest, I think working in mental health and in drugs and alcohol services in the 90s, I can't talk about it now because I don't work in those services now. I felt it was a more inclusive environment to work in than in the traditional psychiatric services. And I thought that majority of the staff had quite a specific approach, which I really liked. They, there was very, very values based, a lot of motivational interview, working with people's individual levels of, of what they wanted to achieve, very goal setting, uh, very collaborative. Um, and of course, we worked like that because we didn't have any compulsory treatment in drug and alcohol services. So we, mm. we had to work in that particular way without that, that kind of, on of well we can work on you like that but actually if things deteriorate we have other options and so I really like that way of working and I think there's a lot that we can take from that and translate into practice in mental health as well mm, yeah yeah we're actually getting some questions in already but um, before we come to them I think it would be really nice just to hear a little bit about the work you've been doing um recently so you've been doing some work around COVID if you can tell us a little bit about that. Yeah well um, I've got a study called the RICO study um, which we got we started in January which very excited to see a commissioned call on comorbid drug and alcohol and mental health and that came out a year ago or so and a, a group of us um, got together and applied for it so we've got people like Gail Gilchrist from Kings, Alex Capello um, from Birmingham, Harry Sumnall from Liverpool, John Moores, um, and and various other. You know, I can post the link later so people can have a look at the. Um, at it's the a bit of a super group then for people who don't it is, know. It's area. a fabulous <laughs> super group. It's just like it was just a joy. It's a, it was a joy to put the grant together. A joy to work with everybody, and we've also got um, Charlotte Walker, who's you might know as bipolar blogger, who's our PPI co-applicant as well, who's fantastic, and I've worked with Charlotte before on other studies and we're kind of we've got um some people with lived experience that will be contributing throughout the study as well but that's basically a new approach to looking at dual diagnosis in that we want to understand from a realist point of view not so much what work how how does something work but it's what works for whom and in what context so we're taking a fresh look at the literature and the evidence base are using that as a as a sort of framework to develop theories about the kind of almost like the ingredients of what good practice might look like and then from then on we can make recommendations um, as to how we can then um, take this forward as well i think i can hear my dog coming we like the dog. <laughs> it's good i thought i thought she'd gone away but i just heard some tippy taps anyway apologize to everyone if my dog 
Oh, it's fine. Well, I might have to let Absolutely her in. Absolutely fine. Her in. Introduce her um, so that people know who she is, and then we'll just Mrs. press on again. This is Bertha. Oh, I think people will love Bertha. I think we've just lost <laughs> lost any focus that people are going to have about she's, your research she's on COVID. Managed though. to appear on many meetings. Um, so yeah, so we, it's three stages. We're looking at the literature, which we've nearly completed, and we're going to be synthesising that. Uh, we're mapping the dual diagnosis services that exist in the UK, mm. uh, which is fascinating because we can already see. I think I'm planning to create a bit of a map of hotspots because we can sort of see where dual diagnosis services have existed and have existed for quite a long time and where they they just don't really seem to have any sort of commissioned services so that's really interesting because it's not because of the lack of prevalence because no, this issue is everywhere it's it's i'm really curious to find out why some places have it and why some places don't as well um, and then we're going to do thing. some yeah, and then we're going to kind of mm. drill down into sort of six sites and we're going to really kind of um, understand what's going on and probably places where they've had fairly established sort of initiatives around this clinical issue. Places like London, Manchester, um, possibly Leeds, Birmingham, et cetera, et cetera. So we're going to look at kind of how they work, what service users say about what what it's like to use the services, how it works for different people. So, you know, I mentioned gender before. So, you know, this model of care, does it work for men, but not for women? Does it work for people who are um, have a stable home? And does it not work for people who are homeless? What about people from black and ethnic minorities, refugees, you know, and on and on and on. So we're going to try and really understand um, and make some highlights and really good practice and things that people can learn and implement and also think about recommendations for future research as well. So mm. that should be finished by the end of next year, but we'll mm. hopefully publish things as we go along as well. Mm. That's really useful. So obviously, that was, oh yeah, back to COVID. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. So of, I was kind of the two things to interact. Yeah, so basically it's, it's, you can't ignore COVID when you're doing research now because it's impacted on literally everything in our lives and so we were starting even the mapping so we we're trying to find out about services and that's kind of had to be paused because you know the services won't respond to emails whilst they're dealing with you know a tsunami of crisis and mental health and substance use services have had to rapidly change how they work um to, in order to um you know respond to the needs for social distancing and remote working and uh, PPE and new, you know, redeploying staff. So, it, so what we're doing is I've I've kind of started to kind of gather some anecdotal information about what's been happening in in our, you know, in the in the UK around specific services and dual diagnosis. But also, I've looked at the literature around uh, mental health and substance use from countries that had COVID earlier than us, like Italy and. Um, China and see what's been published and and so yeah just kind of pulling it all together at the moment. So how is COVID impacting um, your client group? Well we don't we don't really know um, for sure um, we've got a number of concerns I think um, in terms of uh, the the physical vulnerabilities of this group, they've already got, um, you know, people with serious mental illness, as we know, have significant comorbid physical health problems, such as kind of uh, cardiovascular, lung issues, um, hepatitis C, um, et cetera, et cetera, diabetes, obesity. These things will make you more vulnerable to COVID infection, uh, sort of, severity I guess um, so we've already got that kind of you're already coming into it with the vulnerability and then you've got the issues around where you live and how closely you live with other people do you live in hostels can you not socially distance um, and on the conversely you've got isolation as well and and lack of access to services and advice and support all the peer support all the groups you might have attended everything just stopped overnight. If you haven't got, if you um, haven't got access to the internet or you've, you know, you might, you might have a phone, but you might not have enough data to access stuff online. 
you know, all that suddenly that really strips down what you actually have. So I'm I'm really worried um, about the kind of longer term impacts of this period and, and kind of what it's meant for people. And one of the things we'll be able to do in the RECO study is we're interviewing people um, with lived experience who are kind of currently using the services with and we'll, we'll be able to ask them not just about services as normal, but also what's happened during this period. Uh, as well. So how, what's your take on services? Because I understand people have been moved around to fill emergency gaps and how's that impacting dual diagnosis services? Yeah well quite dramatically because um, um, there's a group called Progress um, and they are a group of people that have been going for years and years. It's a kind of in, informal consortium of leaders in, in the field, uh, mainly consultant nurses and, and other similar um, senior clinicians and so and I'm a member of that group as well so we've kind of been discussing and talking by email about what's been happening and you know there's issues around you know suddenly being redeployed so out of your leadership role into another role just because the front line required that um, there's um, there's issues around services being um Read, uh, re reconfigured, shall we say? So wards will close, um, and they'll be. Oh, sorry about my dog. She just wants to be in and out. Come in, come in. <laughs> and um, she needs to get top billing now. <laughs> she does. Come on. And so, <laughs> mm -hmm. and uh, so people. So ha having so basically, what we've got to remember is even before COVID, there wasn't a lot of stuff. Yeah. going on for people with dual diagnosis and even that stuff has been redeployed um, so it doesn't really exist at the moment and so when you need you've got a challenging situation where staff often require advice and help from you know specialist roles and those roles are not there it's suddenly you're going to leave a lot of people managing in the dark really mm. um and, and and in using new ways of working as well so i do know that in some ways there's been some positive um feedback mm. that, that clinical staff have been asking for more advice about mm. how to do brief interventions online mm. um and things like that and also about some extra the extraordinary resilience that their client group has been showing which is great, but part of me thinks you shouldn't have to be that resilient. You should just be able to get what you need. So, yeah. you know, hats off to people for being really strong, but they'll have there'll be an impact down the line of having to be extra strong and, you know, coping, mm. but at, the, at what expense? So, you know, it, it, it's, it will, it'll come out, and I think we haven't had a chance really to look at the real impact yet but you know i'm sure there's going to be some some pretty harrowing you know accounts really of how people have been trying to you know manage difficult situations on their own uh mm. things like alcohol detoxes have, have, have kind of been reduced um to only people who are very severe and so a lot you know people have been told to you know oh well we, we can't look at detox at the moment we need to um we need to kind of just maintain you and not and not manage things like that. So usual access to things is just gone, really. Mm. Mm. I suppose it matters as well, doesn't it? If you've got your your key leadership deployed elsewhere, no one's paying attention to mm. keeping things going forward and progressing. That's really interesting. Thanks, this. Um, Vanessa, do we have some questions? Yeah, we've got quite a few questions. We've got lots of love for Bertha as well. Um, <laughs> Yeah, we've got lots of questions here. We've answered a few of them already, so I'm going to work through them. So we've got one, um, a comment here about dual diagnosis workers and nurses are often seen as a commission in luxury. How can we increase the awareness of coexisting health issues and substance use disorders? Well, my answer would be we shouldn't really have to because the stats mm. speak for themselves. We've got about yeah. 30 to 30 to 50 percent of people in mental health services have coexisting 
substance use issues at one point or another. It's if you go to an inpatient ward, it's higher. Go to a forensic ward, it's even higher. Yeah. Um, then you look at, and I, I always hate using these statistics, but they're the ones that get people to sit up and take notice. Is is the national confidential inquiries yeah. in suicide and homicide, and year on year, Louis Appleby's team have highlighted this group as a group of concern. Um, we don't have we don't have um, CPD anymore for people to access around dual diagnosis. Um, dual diagnosis roles are not a luxury; they're an absolute necessity. Um, but we haven't really ever done any sort of evaluation of the impact of these roles. So it's a bit it's a bit equivocal in a lot of ways so we can't say yes if you have this specialist role x y and z will happen but obviously if you don't have those specialist roles nothing will happen because no one's going to take a lead and there's also the age-old battle of who commissions this so if it's drugs and alcohol it's public health england and it's local authority if it's mental health then it's nhs england and it's the ccgs and maybe maybe the siloing of the commissioning has been compounded even more. Uh, I mean, the the role I had was commissioned by the DATS, the drug action team back in the day. Um, 100%, although I I spent a lot of my time working in the mental health services, working with their client group, as well as people in our service. It needs a joint approach. So it needs joint commissioning. Um, It needs the, the... commissioners to work together and have a local joint strategy about how this is going to work but without any sort of leadership at all it, it it's it's never going to happen so I, I i like the idea of oh my god there's another dog just let them all just do what they want oh, yeah on. do what you want um so um, yeah so i think I mean, I was, it was, my my job was a ridiculous example. So you commission one person, one G grade back in the day when it was, yeah, yeah, Whitley Council, one G grade or one, you know, well, I guess, what would that be now? Band six, band seven? Seven, eight. Seven, yeah. Um, So one person, one borough. So one, one nurse for one borough, the whole of Bromley. And the, the, the remit was, sort dual diagnosis out between the council the drug and alcohol services and mental health and I was like yeah no problem (laughs) when I actually tried to do it it was impossible because you your impact is so minimal Mm. I had a caseload of about 15 people um which took up a big chunk of my week um quite rightly so the rest of the time was used on liaison and training and going to wards and talking to staff. But it took it took months to kind of for people to even know who I was because every time I went to the ward, it was a different set of staff. So you really do need you need a strategy that that operates above, but you need some real good grassroots workers, kind of in every aspect of the service to provide that kind of. Um, just that working alongside people. I mean, you know, one of the things um, I used to do was um, go and do an assessment on the ward. And one of the things we did was, you know, collect a urine screening just to kind of uh, see what people were using. And the staff were saying, how come you can get people to give you a sample? And I went, because I just asked them. And they were like, oh, and it's, it's something about the, back to what I was saying before about the approach that you use and the values um that's really important and we've done a lot of work with um, service users and people with lived experience and one of the things they say over and over again is this attitudinal stuff that they want they want people to um, listen to them they want people to value them and respect them and 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 just try and understand and I think that's the thing that um, is, is 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 actually more important than like what technical skills were you using CBT or MI or it's having those kind of values that are really important it's not a lot to ask is it it really is shouldn't be no so we we have really difficult um attitudes towards drug and alcohol in society and then in mental health it's often seen as a self-sabotaging behavior 
So, that, oh, you wouldn't be back in hospital if you hadn't started drinking again. And there's a lot of blaming and it's just so counterproductive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's because a lot of people don't have that kind of understanding of what, what, where the drugs and alcohol fit into the whole picture. And it is a coping strategy. It's a, it's a form of trying to manage every day and, um, and it's 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 putting it into context and only things like training and cpd and supervision can really help people address that and it's mm. something that probably should be oh my god it should be something that um is uh, in our student nurse training as well yeah but where are the experts in substance use now we've kind of mm. lost a lot of our um, leaders and mm. and services and so there isn't much input into our nursing curriculum either so I'm not surprised it kind of perpetuates we've got absolutely tons of questions coming in so I'll go back to Vanessa just do your best Vanessa (laughs) (laughs) so we've got um do we have an overview of how COVID-19 has impacted on the presentation of dual diagnosis in mental health trusts so we've kind of covered a lot of that I guess yeah yeah and then we've got um Natalie would be interested to hear thoughts on how the NICE guidelines, which suggest services should not have standalone du- dual diagnosis teams, impact on care for this group. In my experience, instead of increasing access, it simply reduces it further and waters down specialist skills for dual diagnosis. So we've covered a lot of that as well, haven't we? Really, but anything. Yeah, is that, is that sorry? There's that question saying why we don't have special specialist teams. Um, it says, yeah suggest services should it's basically saying um about the nice guidelines suggesting services should not have standalone dual diagnosis teams um and she's saying instead of increasing access it simply reduces it further and waters down specialist skills yeah i think think, yeah i think we need specialists we've got to have specialists they don't necessarily have to be i don't i think there's too many people that fit into this category for a, for a team, like we've seen this when we started splitting CMHTs down into specific teams and then you, you have to try and fit people into, you know, is it early intervention? Is it AOT? Is it this? Is it that? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think have, adding another, adding a dual diagnosis team, it would be packed and, st- and then static and you'd never move on. So um, I think you need leaders, you need role models, you need, you need a plan, you need kind of a cascade model. Um, so you need leaders, you need link workers, you need you need in every clinical service there should be somebody with a special interest. A bit like you might have someone with a special interest in eating disorders. You know, I think we need these specialists that we can all learn from. Um, and I could, could probably think of a number of areas. You know, I think somebody who's who's um, you know has expertise in personality disorders, for example, because again, that's an area where. It's very emotive. People have lots of opinions about it. A lot of unhelpful responses to people with that that label. Um, and yet, there's actually quite a lot of you know understanding now and recognition of actually working in a more trauma informed yeah. um, fashion is actually a really positive way to work. Um, yeah. And 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 getting away from this kind of diagnosis of exclusion. And I, I see the same attitudes. To drug and alcohol and i i get it i get that you know people might perceive this group as really challenging and it's i didn't come into mental health to work with drugs and alcohol i've heard it i've literally heard it a million times but i've also heard it in drug and alcohol services it's mm. like, oh, I, I want to work with people with actual proper drug problems rather than someone who smokes cannabis and it, it, it's like what are we doing yeah. why it's do we get that the idea why a nurse would suddenly, yeah? Why a nurse would suddenly think that they can order a patient group off a menu? I'm like, yeah. you're, that's not about you. You're here to do what they need, not what you'd feel like. Like, oh, yeah. I feel like depression today. That's not how this works. Yeah, it's really bizarre. Just, no, we're yeah. here. So, we're here to serve. You yeah, know, and, absolutely. And it's what comes through the door, and we we have to adapt to that those needs rather than mm-hmm. and I have worked I mean and I think if people do I mean you know I think people get triggered by different p- things that's and true. that's important to recognize and staff will have their all sorts of their own internal stuff going on but that's where supervision and this is a thing mm-hmm. you know I've talked to lots of people recently about where's our clinical supervision here a lot of this stuff could be nails 
if we yeah. had proper clinical supervision that, that mm. got us to question our reactions to certain groups mm. and certain behaviours and, and then think about how we can move beyond that as well. Yeah. I think um, you've touched on it about trauma and it's certainly reflected in the, some of the questions and some of my own thinking having worked in prisons that... Mm. Uh, you know, we work within a very medical model where we separate, um, as you say, depression from addictions and so yeah. on. Um, and perhaps, you know, reframing something within a trauma perspective is part of the solution. And um, and we've got some um, thoughts on that here in terms of the curriculum as well. And mm. some questions that one of the ways of addressing the gaps in the curriculum are to look at things from a trauma-informed perspective. Yeah, um, yeah. totally agree. Yeah. Totally agree. That having that rather than going, oh, today we're going to do drug and alcohol. Today we're going to do personality disorder. Today we're going to let's let's look at the kind of you know the trauma informed approach, and then the things that spring out, the manifestations of that is that all we're talking about. So drug and alcohol, self harm, you know, hallucinations, flashbacks are all manifestations of a central kind of core understanding yeah. and and then having an explanation for behaviors that might not seem understandable at the time can really help people with their compassion and and kind of yeah. alternative responses really so I think that's real to me that's that's critical yeah definitely and I think it fits in with what you were saying about some of the structural issues around being a diagnosis of exclusion which you know I've seen certainly um you know working within prisons and referring people to specialist mental health services and people being refused because of their sort of active addictions or um you know for other forensic issues and that's one thing that really winds me up is this arbitrary uh, you can't have any mental health care until you're sober or not using drugs because we were able to do cycle we were able to do talking therapies with people on crack and heroin and opiates and benzodiazepines and you know you know but we still managed to have very useful therapeutic sessions with people Mm. even with that because they're tolerant it's not like they're they're not intoxicated, they're tolerant. So they might be taking a whole load of drugs. And yes, there might be some numbing there, but actually that can be quite safe because I've seen, um, we did this work with a particular person who'd had a lot of trauma and she was drinking a lot. And so she started seeing, um, doing some therapy and stop drinking and she literally fell apart without the alcohol. I'm not, I'm not saying, not suggesting alcohol was the right thing to do, but the whole thing together with taking away her safety nets, with then bringing everything out of the, out of the thing was, mm. was quite mm. something to behold. Mm. And it didn't feel very, um what's the word it didn't feel very helpful at the time and we did have Mm. we didn't we did go into a mental health crisis with this Mm. woman because of that and I think looking back things need to be handled in a very different way in kind of paced careful way you know especially Mm. with people with a lots and lots of traumatic experiences Mm. sometimes the drug and alcohol is all you do sometimes that's all that's holding people together it's getting people through and we've got to be really delicate around the advice we say about take that away if you stop using that then everything will be fine often that's not the tr- not the case i right. i've seen it's people, odd isn't it because it's a coping yeah. strategy you can't yeah. take away a coping strategy before you've put another one in place put another one in absolutely yeah. and you do it do you think incrementally yeah. you do it incrementally you do it in a safe way absolutely mm. 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 Um, I've also, I know we've got loads more questions, but we are we are nearly through our time, so <laughs> that's happened really fast. Wow! Um, that's to, um, yeah. yeah, before we um, before we sort of um, take the last round of questions and things like that, I thought um, it'd be really useful because we were talking about some of the kind of COVID issues, and we haven't mm. got through half of the things we wanted mm. to talk to you about. So I think probably we'll be having both you and Bertha back another time. <laughs> but, but, um, can you tell us a bit about, about infections that. and PPE? Because that's something I think that's current for this present time that people need to be a bit aware of. Yeah, so I think I think I think probably things have moved on, but certainly that what what was hearing at the start of the pandemic was 
um, certainly mental health um, not having access to PPE as a standard approach so um, and conflicting advice about when you should don it and you know I've, I've heard and this is all anecdotal I don't have this is not research or anything like that but you know I've been hearing hearing um, things about oh you only use PPE if you know someone's COVID positive and back in that you know back in sort of April we we didn't even have access to testing so you know half the time you didn't know who was positive or who wasn't um, and I think the mental health services have had to play a bit of catch up on physical health and barrier nursing and things like that we've all had to go on a very steep learning curve around how you manage infection uh, and things like that there's even kind of you know movements to kind of full uniform even for the community just because of this idea of you know wearing something you can wash and take off before you go home is actually quite important um, but the other issue um around infection and, and mental health is, is around and drug and alcohol is, is about, you know, um, sharing, sharing equipment for drug use, for example. Now, we know COVID's in everybody fluid. We know that if you touch something um, and someone else touches it, it's, you know, it, it's, it's an infection vector. So, you know, mm. there's issues around how people have been taking drugs during this period, you know, what they've been exposing themselves to. And whether they've been able to access the needle exchanges and other things that they would normally be able to, you know, go down, pop down a chemist. But I don't know about you, but the queues outside the pharmacies and letting one person in and out will prohibit anyone just popping in for a needle exchange. So, you know, mm. uh, you know, the idea of going into lockdown and having one exercise a day. And, mm. you know, I just think all the things that people might have been accessing have gone out out of those out the window in a way so I was do worry anything? about infections not yeah, just yeah. COVID but also you know bloodborne infections as well absolutely well do you think there's been any positive or any any positive changes at all brought by the kind of new experience that we've been through yeah I mean I think I think we've all we've all kind of identified some positives out of the experience I mean, and certainly what I've heard so what again um anecdotally I've been told you know people have been impressed with the resilience that their client group has shown, but also um, the fact that remote methods have worked for some of the groups that they perhaps didn't think they would. So um, I, I know somebody who works um, with people with homelessness and complex needs, and actually she's found accessing them through telephones and other methods actually quite quite effective and in some ways more effective than have the old system of expecting them to pitch up at your service at a set time you can give them a ring if they don't answer you give them a ring again you know an hour later and, and you might get hold of them or you can text but just using that because I've always had this thing that the health service um, and other services have this thing about, oh, we can't use phones, we can't text people because it feels like it's too personal or it's it's not quite professional. But actually, I think, you know, that's a, people use WhatsApp now. It's, it's a kind of really easy way of getting in touch with people. You can see if someone's read your message. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of worked really nicely, I think. And I think hopefully we can... We can take the best of these methods, but also obviously bring back the kind of more holistic face-to-face yeah. -face stuff as well um, mm -hmm. that, that's, that, that works. Mm, it's interesting. It's, it's disrupted a lot of um, um, expectations. And I think as well challenged some of um, our staff having quite low expectations of what people are capable of. Yeah. Yeah. Turns and out what people are capable of managing yeah. as well. Yeah. And the other thing, and I know with the um, Public Health England guidance on uh, dispensing of opiate substitution therapy, people who were not allowed to, you know, even have their own responsibility for their methadone and other opiate substitutes have done really well with being given, you know, a week at a time or, you know, non gone to non-supervised mm -hmm. dispensing just because you can't have someone pitching up at a pharmacy every day or down at the clinic every day. So yeah. being given people more responsibility, people have risen to that as well. Mm. And I think there's well, been some issues that we, you know, there'll, there'll be some people where it hasn't worked, but I think it's, mm. it's how we manage risk in the, you know, and there'll always be people it won't work so well for. 
and then those people it does work for it's at their expense as well so I think we need to think about positive risk taking a little bit more as well we'll have to now (laughs) well we've we've been forced to so I mean it's good it's good Mm. shaking things up yeah let's have one last um, batch of questions then so Vanessa um We've got quite a few questions which we're not going to have a chance to cover, but um, just to reassure people that we will go back through the thread afterwards and any outstanding questions we will ask, um, but answer. But one question in particular I wanted to um, ask Liz, and um, and I'm not sure um, where this person's from in terms of the advice you can give, but it says, um, how can I find support for butane abuse alongside my diagnosis of EUPD? So any um, awareness of any services specifically um, supporting people who are abusing butane gas? Um, I think most services should be able to offer some advice. I mean, I've always I've always treat any any sort of substance. It's not so much about the specific. I mean, obviously, there's kind of safety issues around butane and things like that. But to be honest, you know, the way you approach helping people understand uh, their use is, is is generic and any any local drug service should be able to offer some advice um, and there's also you know I can put some I can dig out some links there's you know there's other um, websites for advice and kind of information about it but actually the local um, drug service should be able to at least offer some sort of level of advice and then if mm. need be some kind of you know ongoing support yeah that's great thank you um we've got time for one more nikki or... yeah. Yeah. yeah we'll do a couple more yeah yeah okay um another one here then do we know how widespread screening and brief interventions for alcohol misuse is across mental health trusts so do we know how widespread screening and brief interventions for alcohol misuse is well it, sh- it should be it should be because it's part of it's part of what happens when people are admitted to hospital, they should be screened for alcohol. Um, they, there are, it depends on what you mean by brief intervention. Oh, because there's, yeah. there's obviously um, a whole range of stuff um, going on. And I think there will be some stuff going on in some trusts where they have staff trained in delivering particular there's a particular approach to brief interventions for alcohol. I, I mean, I think it should be bread and butter of any mental health nurse yeah. on any ward should be able to deliver brief interventions. I I wouldn't like to hazard a guess as to how widespread. Definitely the screening, this audit is part of standard data collection, as in as is smoking, you know, smoking cessation questions as well should be part of standard care. The problem I always have is people ask the questions, then what do we do with that information? And what do we do as a consequence? And it's whether that actually progresses into some form of brief intervention. So there was a really nice study done in Birmingham by Alex and Emma Griffin and um, Herman Graham, that group over there in Birmingham, did an actual feasibility study of brief motivational interviewing interventions for substance use in inpatient services. Um, and uh, you know that that's a good example. Um, so I certainly know that Birmingham um, definitely have staff trained uh, to deliver that kind of intervention. Um, but I, I wouldn't know exactly what's happening elsewhere. Mm. Okay, I think we're going to have to. Have you got one more there, Vanessa, or should we stop? Um, no, I think we've covered most of them, to be honest, in the comments that we've um, and mm. we've had. So, yeah. yeah. So we don't want to cut people off because obviously we're really grateful and pleased that you feel able to interact and ask questions and join in. So um, anything we've missed, we'll like to so go back through the string and check. But I guess we're going to finish up now. So um, before we do that, can I just come to... Um, Vanessa and then and um, then Liz to see if there's any any last words anything that um, people would like to say before we finish on this subject. Yeah, I mean for me it's just been a really useful conversation. Thank you, Liz. And um, I feel that we've only just kind of touched the surface of this. Mm. There's a lot that we should we should come back to, um, particularly you know around some of the sort of structural barriers and um, mm. and the values and and I guess it might be good for us to do something on trauma informed um perspectives one week as well 
Um, so I just, I think for me, it's just been really, really useful. But I think, um, yeah, we need to come, probably come back to this conversation. It's really important. And thank you. Liz? Yeah, I think um, COVID has just highlighted inequalities across the board. And this, you know, the, the plight of people who have multiple needs, who use mental health and substance use services, you know, I've been doing this for 20 odd years and I still feel like I'm saying the same stuff and um and we it's it's frustrating in a way I feel like we need to kind of really get to grips with with this issue and and not see it as a kind of add-on but just see it as very much a core part of mental health core mm. part of mental health nursing is to work with substance use and, and mental health yeah agree absolutely I think we've got to stop suggesting that everyone fits into our team planning, our service provision and our, our fantasy about how we'd beautifully like to deliver some kind of therapeutic intervention. If it wasn't so messed up by the person who's supposed to be receiving it all the time, then that's yeah. absolutely bonkers, isn't it? When you think, yeah. why, why are we mad at people for not fitting into a system that's supposed to be designed for them? Exactly. And it goes round and round. But um, I was hoping to talk to you about all your work on sex and sexuality and mental health. So we'll have to we'll have to rearrange for our eighteen, yeah, yeah. <laughs> our eighteen edition. Don't set me off on that one. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to set you off on that one. Yeah, <laughs> on a later day. Well, but thank well. you ever so much, everyone, for for no, watching, for, for participating, and and very much thank you to Liz, our guest. All right. Thank you, no Good problem. night. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Bye.